only source of true delight whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding If you have your Bibles, I'll ask you to open them up to Psalm 131. And as you're turning, I'll tell you that this summer, a good friend of mine, David Speakman, who's the RUF campus minister at Davidson College, taught a few devotionals on this particular psalm. It's one that I have spent, I guess, most of my life overlooking. And I won't say that it was a pleasant experience to sit under what he had to say, but it's been a very redemptive experience and something that I want to say thank you to him for. And so some of the things I have to say to you are from from David. The the other thing I want to say is that I've never had an original thought in all of my life. There have been times I thought I did. I realized I did not. Um, but there are some people who have had some, some great impressions on me as far as teaching this psalm. And one of them is David Pallison, who's a great counselor and a writer and professor. And so I want to give him a lot of credit because some of the things I have to say this morning are directly out of his mouth. Sinclair Ferguson, who is a hero, if I only uh, could even be in the same room almost with Sinclair Ferguson, I'd feel pretty special. And he as well has shaped some of the things I have to say to you this morning about this psalm. So I want to give them credit to start with. But... Before we read the scripture, I'll tell you a little bit about where I was not so many hours ago. We were in our den. Kendall had made this amazing meal last night, and we were watching the Clemson Tigers battle the Auburn Tigers on television. And my intern, who's no longer with us anymore, but I guess he'll always be my intern, Nathan Lucy, who was here the last two years, was sending me text messages saying, War Eagle, as you can imagine. Well, our family was not pulling for War Eagle. Our family was pulling for the Clemson Tigers. And as the, uh, the game drew to a close, uh, it resulted in a very terrible way. It, as we walked up the steps, my daughter Wells said, it's not fair, Dad. They worked so hard. They worked so hard. It's not fair. And I said, I know it's not fair, Wells. And we got in the, and she, I tucked her into the bed and she said, that's why I hate Auburn. That's why I hate Auburn, you know. I was like, I know, I know. But meanwhile, meanwhile, uh, Nathan is continuing to text me with War Eagle. And I was thinking, this is just not the way it's supposed to be. Now, the funny part about it is um, I kind of grew up, my dad had a, an interesting approach to life, maybe like some of yours. It's kind of a Murphy's Law approach to life. If it can go wrong, it will go wrong. And so basically, the way that you navigate a world like that is just don't have any expectations of all. If you expect nothing, you won't be disappointed when you get nothing. And so it's just kind of like, you know, we li- and we can theologize that as well. You know, we live in a sinful world. Presbyterians know about sin. We know a lot about sin. So we can talk about how sinful we are and how fallen we are. And we can talk about we live in a messed up world. So don't be surprised when your life is messed up and all your dreams come crashing down. Just expect very little and you won't be as disappointed. And so that's how a lot of us in this room navigate the waters of our life. The second way we do it is there's some of us, on the other hand, who are kind of, tomorrow's going to be better. We kind of have the Annie approach to life. You know, the sun will come out tomorrow, but your bottom dollar that tomorrow, there'll be sun. The, the clouds are going to part and the sun's going to shine and it's all going to be better tomorrow. 
And yet the Bible really doesn't direct us to approach life either of those ways. It doesn't tell us the sun will come out. It doesn't tell us to give up on life. But it tells us that in this world where things aren't the way that they're supposed to be, in this world where we're full of this anxiety and nervousness, that there is hope for us. But our hope is in something different. That there's rest for the weary. And I want you to see that rest this morning as I read Psalm 131. But one more thing. As I read it, I'd like you to ask this question. Does this psalm describe me? So hear what God's Word has to say to us. This is a psalm of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's Word stands forever. Let's ask the Lord to open up this truth to us today. Father, if we're honest, um, we're very restless people. We're full of anxiety, with worry and busyness. Some of us uh, had not-so-pleasant rides to church this morning. We barely made it. We're not sure if our spouse still likes us or not. We didn't get time to talk about that yet. We're not sure if you want us here. We don't know if you have anything to teach us. We're not even sure if we want to hear what you have to say to us. Lord, it's hard for us to be honest. It's even harder for us to to live in this restlessness. We're so weary. Father, I pray that you wouldn't beat us down, but that you would lift us up, that you would encourage our hearts this day from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This summer, we anxiously anticipated and waited for TCU to, to make its, its kind of opening day appearance as far as the new football season goes. And so we, got, we were fortunate enough to get some discounted tickets on Groupon, and we were going to Jerry World to watch this amazing, hopefully, TCU victory. But the whole day, I was filled with anxiety. I was anxious about a number of things. I was worried about whether we were going to win the game. I was worried even more about whether I was going to find a place to park. I was also worried about how much I was going to have to spend to park. I'm terrible with directions. I'm terrible with navigating. My wife is so much better than I am. But on this particular day, I felt like the weight of the world was kind of weighing on my shoulders. And so I actually called Miles in the morning and said, I've looked up this site that tells you where you can park and so forth and so on. And I wasn't sure. But anyway, we pulled, Kendall, I tried to hide all this too. But Kendall can read me like a book. Obviously, we've been married for 15 years. So the whole way down the road, I'm like, this is a great day. You know, everybody's calm and cool and collected. Meanwhile, my face is full of terror and anxiety because I'm like white knuckle grip on the steering wheel. Am I going to get off at the right exit? Am I going to make a wrong turn? Am I going to spend 50 dollars at parking are seats going to be any good we trusted this website you know there was a million things going through my mind anyway uh not to mention is tcu going to win the game so we sat down and our seats were pretty good we found a parking spot we even had some snacks outside the car things were lining up and uh, about i don't know almost the end of the first quarter i noticed that the that wells and simeon and kendall were probably ready for something to eat you know they wanted a snack the kids wanted hot dogs kendall wanted nachos I wanted mostly to watch the game, but I knew this was a good break in the action, so it would be a good time to slip away and to go get the the necessities that we needed to nourish our body on the junk food at at Jerry World. (laughs) So I asked what people wanted. Well, instead of being able to bolt it down to one station, there was going to be three different stations we were going to have to navigate as we got all the things that we needed. But on the way out of our section, I noticed this, this, like, 
station where you could dress your hot dogs. You know, it's got the mustard and the ketchup. It's got the napkins. It's got all the necessities, everything that you can need. And so I said, there is nobody at that station. That's where I'll be doing business in just a few minutes. Plus, it's real close to our section, and I won't have to worry about balancing the mustard back up the steps. Anyway, so I walk out. We go down. We get the drinks first. Then we go over, and we get the hot dogs and the nachos. We're on our way back up. The station is there, just like I thought. There's nobody there. Everything's working perfectly. So I, 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 I'm like, okay, Wells likes her hot dog plain and dry. Perfect. Simeon likes a little ketchup. So I get his out. I put a little ketchup on his hot dog, wrap it back up. We're ready to go. Now it's time for me to dress my own hot dog the way I want it. I mean, I'm going to make the perfect hot dog. So I'm thinking mustard first, always mustard first. So I start to lay down on the lever of the mustard. Now, I failed to mention here that I also got dressed for the day because I'm, I care about how I look. I care about my appearance. I have this favorite pair of Patagonia khaki stand-up shorts that were perfect for game day. And so I'm wearing my, my purple TCU polo and my, my khaki uh, Patagonia shorts, and I'm laying down on the mustard at this point. And it was like it got sick on me, basically, because <laughs> there was something apparently that was like clogging it, and it buckshot it all over me. And so I have mustard all over my arm, and my whole left side of my pants leg was covered in mustard. Not, you know, it's like it snowed mustard on me because it was about two inches deep. It was all down my leg, and then I look over at Wells, and she's laughing at me, which, and I wasn't feeling like it was funny at all. I thought it was the most unfunny thing that had ever happened. And then, meanwhile, these two guys from this new ministry at TCU come up and are like, Hey, man, what's going on? Man, you really know what you're doing here, you know? Because I got these nachos and hot dogs, and I'm like, wanted to strangle them because they obviously didn't see the mustard all over me, and I was not as friendly to them as I ought to have been. Actually, I wasn't friendly at all to them. And so then I'm cleaning mustard off my leg, and I'm wiping it up, and I'm like, Come on, Wells, let's go. So I storm down the steps to where we're sitting, and I just kind of drop off all the gear, and I'm like, just storm back up the steps. I go to the bathroom. I'm going to get cleaned up. And I just get this wet uh, paper towel. Start wiping it down the mustard, which does a great job of doing two things. Number one, sinking the mustard deeper into the fabric. The other thing it did was it made my entire short pants leg completely soaking wet, which was awesome for the next three quarters to sit in wet, uh, basically, shorts with mustard all over. So I'm walking down. I'm walking. As I walk out of the bathroom, I've got my hat. Now it's off my head. I'm showing everybody my hat head. And I've also got my hat in front of my legs, you know, like this, kind of like, what's going on? So nobody can see all the mustard on my shorts. I'm so embarrassed. I had to get up and go again. Anyway, needless to say, as funny as it is now, it was not funny then. I sat down and I said, okay, I just poured. I told Kendall, I looked her in the eye and I said, FYI, I just squirted mustard all over myself. I'm in a real good mood right now. Just thought I'd tell you. Back to the game. Anyway... Something that was supposed to be extremely fun ended up not being that fun. <laughs> now, what does that have to do with anything? Well, that describes my heart. And that's, what this, and that's why I did not like this song at first, but I'm growing to like it. Because my heart is nothing like David's heart. My heart was full of anxiety and busyness. It's rattled. It's haunted. I mean, my whole life is metaphorically squirting mustard all over my, shirt, my shorts. It's, that's just who I am. And as I started thinking and reading what David Powelson wrote, as he, he kind of articulates this psalm in the negative. He, he wrote the anti-psalm. I started thinking the anti-psalm sounds a whole lot more like me than the psalm. See if it sounds like you. It's not addressed to the Lord. It says it this way. It says, Self, my heart is proud. I'm absorbed with myself. My eyes are haughty. I look down on other people. And I, and I chase after things too great and too difficult for me. So, of course, I'm noisy and restless inside. It comes naturally. 
like a hungry infant fussing on his mother's lap, like a hungry infant. I'm restless with my demands and worries. I scatter my hopes onto anything and everybody all the time. You see, that anti-psalm kind of describes this very fragile existence. It's a rest that's based only on the circumstances of our lives. And we know that the circumstances aren't always ideal. And so if you depend on those things, then you can be sure that you're going to crash and you're going to burn and your life is going to be full of weariness and anxiety. So what do we do about it? Well, I believe what this psalm teaches us this morning, which is really the whole point, is this. That Jesus alone provides rest for the weary. I mean, he says it in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Uh, An artist that I've grown to love, I don't know all of his songs, but his name is Coffey, and he um, sings a song that's based on Matthew 11, 28. And basically he says this, and it's a little bit slang, but I kind of like it. He says, you've got to give all that stuff to God and lay it at the feet of Jesus and exchange, and in exchange, pick up some rest. And that's what I think David's telling us this morning, is you've got to give all that stuff to God and lay it at the feet of Jesus. In exchange, pick up some rest. Because if you don't, you're going to waste away. Three things I want us to look at under gaining this rest through Jesus, and these are those. So if you're a note taker, I'll try to do my best to stick to it. But here we go. The first one is I want you to see what it means to rest. The second thing I want us to look at is how we find rest. And the last one is why we can rest. What does it mean to rest? how we find rest, and why we can rest. So what does it mean? Well, David is writing this. A couple of things we know about David. Number one is we, knew that he, we know he's a guy that was a, he was a man after God's own heart. He was also in the line of Christ. He wrote a lot of psalms. He was a godly man. God was with him, and David knew God. And so we would be pretty naive and um, pretty ignorant if we weren't to listen to what a man like David would have to teach us this morning. So we know that he's talking, and we know a little bit about him. The other thing we know is is that he learned all this through relationship with God, that these things didn't just come natural to him, but that God got involved in his life and taught David what it means to rest. And so the first part of the psalm basically gives us a picture of a very restful person in David. And this is what it says. He says, my heart's not lifted up. You know, my heart's not noisy. I'm not... He's poised and he's secure. He uses worms like, I've calmed and I've quieted my soul. He says, my eyes are not raised too high. I'm not looking down on other people. I don't occupy myself with things that are too great and too marvelous for me. He's not so busy, 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 busy. Always got to get something different. Always got to try something that's, that's impossible. But no, he's, he's, he's resting. He's calm and he's quiet. But we also find out, as we read the psalm, and certainly we know a lot of other things about David, that, that it wasn't always like this. He hasn't always been this way. Like I said, it's not natural. It's implicit that there's been a struggle in relationship that has brought him to this point of calm and quiet, peace and rest. So how did he get there? Well, I started thinking about what does it mean, first of all, for our heart not to be lifted up? Well, a lifted up heart is a proud heart. It's a heart that's self-trusting. It's independent. It's a heart that's self-sufficient. It's a heart that looks... It's kind of like how our children sometimes treat us. I don't need your help, Dad. I don't need your help, Dad. we got it covered over here. You just stay where you are. But that's what we do to God. I don't need your help, God. we got it all covered over here. We're working out great. Just jump on, jump on board with us. We've, we're going somewhere, and we'd love for you to jump in with us because we've got a destination, and we're doing pretty good by ourselves. So, so get on board. Our heart is lifted up. 
Because we're proud. We don't need God. Our whole life is centered around the godless, unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. See, that's what our world's about, because we're proud. We're lifted up. Our heart's lifted up. The thing problem for us is that this is an American virtue. Most people would say that, that being somebody like that, being you know, self-sufficient, independent, you know, sure-footed in your own abilities, that that's, that's a quality that we want to aspire after. But God doesn't say that. In our culture, we work after that. and We go after that in an early age. But David's not doing that. His trust is not in himself. His trust is in God. He says, my eyes are not raised too high. Now, if you read like Psalm 121 where it says, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. From whence does my help come from? My help is in the name of the Lord. This is the very opposite. To have your eyes raised too high is not to be lifting them up to God, but it's looking down at other people. You see, the person whose eyes are raised up is somebody who displays the pride of their heart by looking down on people who are inferior to them. It's somebody that's always saying, I'm superior to other people. It's, it's this righteousness by comparison. I feel good about myself because I look at other people around me and they don't have it together. Now, I've got a whole list of things we could talk about here and we'll only talk about a few of them. And these are things that I've struggled with myself. You know, it's so easy to be looking at people who, like you go to a restaurant and you watch people parenting their children and you just kind of take that super spiritual stance. Oh my goodness, I feel so sorry for them. They don't know Jesus. They don't know how to parent their children properly. Look at that mother allowing her daughter to tell her what to do. Oh, that is so sad. We do not operate like that in our home. We go to Jesus and we listen to Him and He is the head of our household. And so it's really, that's not true. You know, it's all this, I'm looking down on them because I got my act together. I, you know, I feel so much better about my parenting right now because of how lousy a job they're doing. I feel good about myself right now. You go over to somebody's house that's just an absolute wreck. My goodness, do they not own a vacuum cleaner around here? Have they ever heard the word dusting? I mean, this is unbelievable. I don't know how they even get their children to school in the morning. I feel so much better. I mean, we got up this morning and started our day off right. We had devotions and I even went for a power walk and got the children to school. And it's, we're, just, we're so much more into cleanliness around here. I hope that they'll get that. I hope they'll get that. I don't understand why they can never keep a job. You know, I mean, I've been going every day. I'm logging in. I mean, you know what? I might not make a lot of money, but I'm committed to what I do. And I'm working hard at it. You know, I'm, I'm doing my best. You know, all these other people, I don't understand what they're doing. They're just sitting around. They're not even working. You know, or maybe it's this. I do not understand why they do not have... They don't even know what the chief end of man is. It's the first catechism in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Everybody knows what the chief end of man is. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. They don't do any scripture memory. Their children aren't loving Jesus. They're not reciting great long dissertations of the Bible in the car on the way to school. I don't know what their problem is. These are the things that make us feel good about ourselves. And as Christians, it's the way that we look down on people below us. We want them to attain to where we are. And we want to believe that we're somewhere high so that we can look down on other people and feel good about ourselves. But David doesn't do that. He doesn't look down on other people. There's a bunch of Psalms in this, in this basically this book written by David that says he's the opposite. His life is full of mess and stress and Jesus is his only hope. But he says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and marvelous for me. He's not attempting the impossible. He's not one someone who's never satisfied. This is hard for me to say, but I love Brett Favre. That's not the hard part. I love Brett Favre. I love Brett Favre. I don't get tired of the news about Brett Favre. Some of y'all do. I don't. I love Brett Favre. But the thing is, is that this is the hard part. 
But it's hard to watch a man, as old as Brett Favre is, try to attempt the impossible. I mean, what are the chances that they're really going to win the Super Bowl? I hope it happens for him. I doubt it will. He'll probably get injured. His ankle's not holding up too well. But he, he's, he's, he's that elite, you know, he's already has one Super Bowl, but he needs one more. He's going to do everything in his power to figure out how he can get this one more Super Bowl. You know, his best receiver is hurt and injured. It's basically this approach to life that's like a video game, like The Legend of Zelda or Donkey Kong or Mario or something like that, where, you know, as you pass this level, there's this flaming dragon that's spitting fire and the claw is coming down and there's alligators and there's a creek. And you're like, no problem, I can navigate that. It's not going to be an issue. So, you know, the first 100 times you get through the dragon maybe, but then you get hit by the claw or the alligator eats you up. And that's basically, David says, you know, I'm not trying to do that. I'm not occupying myself with things that are too great and marvelous for me. I'm not trying to spread myself too thin. I mean, this is a big problem on the college campus, but the reason it is is because it's a big problem in my life, and it's a big problem in your life. What do people, what do you, when somebody says, how are you doing? I mean, I was just talking to Patrick, this crane this morning, you know. I had not seen you since you've been back. I'm like, I'm sorry. I know, I want to get together. I've just been so busy, man. I've just been so busy. That's like a righteousness. I'm so busy because I'm really working hard, you know. I hope you all can bow down to me because I've been working really hard. And I'm real busy. We spread ourselves too thin. Our, our life is, I mean, good night. We got our kids running here. We got our kids running there. We're doing, we're trying to perfect the garden in front of our house. We're trying to actually have a lawn. We're trying to work on our window treatments. We're doing all kinds of stuff to try to figure out how we can be marvelous and great because we occupy ourselves in things like that. But David says he's not doing that. His heart's not lifted up. His eyes aren't raised too high and he's not occupying himself with things that are too great and marvelous for him. He's resting. Nathan Lucy, I already told you, he loves, he's my intern. He loves Auburn football. And so his first year at TCU, he went to the TCU OU game. And the guys that he went with were just devastated and mesmerized by the fact that Nathan could sit at this stadium, this OU stadium, and that he could fall asleep during the middle of a football game with all the screaming and hollering. He was in a deep sleep in the middle of a college football game. This is a college man, graduate, who was sleeping during a football game. But the reason Nathan was sleeping was not, you know, because he was just so restful and his heart was lacking anxiety. It was because he was indifferent. He didn't care who won. He's War Eagle. He didn't care about, about TCU. He didn't care about Oklahoma. Those, those, those things weren't important to him. He wasn't sleeping last night, let me tell you. The text messages were just pumping in. Um... <laughs> Now, on the flip side, whenever we go to Camp Greystone in the summer and I'm ministering in Tuxedo, North Carolina, the, the, the dining hall fills with 700-plus people. Most of them are you know, 500-plus screaming little girls. In one part of the meal, they start singing songs. And I'm talking about these songs are loud, banging on the table, clapping. Every little girl singing to the very top of her lungs, you know, smile, smile, let me see you smile, that great big Greystone smile. And there's all these songs that I can sing to you later. And the 150-plus counselors are singing them as well. Meanwhile, my, my good friend David Speakman's son, Sam, is leaning on the table on one elbow, completely asleep. Like, it's like a football game on steroids inside of this dining hall. And Sam is sleeping. Now, he probably was tired. But I also know that he knows his mom and dad love him. He wasn't really that worked up about what was going on around him. It wasn't really that he was indifferent. It was just that he was resting. And that's kind of a, a picture of what we do when we start to find out what it means, what it looks like to rest. We're at peace. We're not proud. We're not constantly trying to justify our existence. 
We're not trying to arrive somewhere, but we're resting. We're resting because God has given us peace. He says, it's okay. You don't, you don't have to you know, try to justify your existence in the next 10 seconds because your, your existence and your status has been justified through Christ on your behalf. But how do we find that rest? How do we find a rest where we, our heart can be at ease in the midst of all the chaos that's going on around us? Well, I think that we look for it in a lot of different places. And before we find out where David found it, I want to say two things. Number one, I thought that he made a mistake in verse 2 because he talks about like a weaned child with its mother. And I don't know much about that. But I know that a nursing baby is quiet with its mother. But the concept of a weaned child made me think about battle royal, like war, drama. And so I thought he missed the boat here. But no, I think that's the whole point. The point is, is that it comes through hard work. It comes through a different way than we might think it does. But how do we try to find rest for the weariness of our souls? Well, David Pallison talks about climbing ladders. And there's three ladders that he, or four ladders that he's kind of identified. And the first one is the ladders of achievement. And this room is full of people who are trying to achieve something. We're, we're, we're trying to climb that ladder, you know, and it feels so good when you achieve something more, when you go for, go for the gusto, when you go for the goal, and you kind of get up on another rung. It feels so good because you've, you've, you've arrived somewhere and you can also look down at all the other people who aren't doing nearly as well as you are. And so it's one of the things I'm surrounded with at TCU is students who are constantly trying to, to pad and fill up their resume with all their amazing qualifications so that they can feel good about themselves and that, that hopefully corporations and, and employers can look at them and say, wow, we really want you because of all the things you've achieved. You know, as parents, we're not in school anymore, but how many of you in this room just live and die on the grades that your children make? You know, how many of you have ingrained it in your children that you better not come home with something less than an A? We don't really care if you do your best. Because we know your best is an A, and we expect an A. We, ex- you, we expect you to study hard. We expect you to be busy like we're busy. How many of you die when your children fail a test? When your children don't do what you've wanted them to do? How many of you are just completely embarrassed? You can't look at the other parents because... Your children have just completely shattered and disappointed you. They've made your family look ridiculous. You see, because we believe in the ladders of achievement, we've got to achieve something. It's kind of like one of the things that I'm really proud of is my son Simeon can pray a lot better than I can. Brother can pray. I don't know how he learned to pray. He can pray. Ask him to pray. I feel proud when Simeon prays. His prayers are a lot better than mine. They're a lot more spiritual. He prayed for me this morning. I wish you could have heard the prayer. made me feel good. Except for the gospel doesn't say I should have any status based on the prayers of my son. But I feel like I do. I feel like I've achieved something when he's praying really good. You know, and there's this solace that I get by looking down upon other people. So that's the first one is. The first way we try to find rest is by climbing the ladder of achievement. We've got to get a new job. We've got to get a new promotion. The second thing is acquisition. If I can only have something more, if I can only have something new. You know, I mean, how many times do you go to your closet and say... I don't have anything to wear. You know, I wish I had something to wear. If I just only had something to wear. Closet's packed with clothes, but you don't have anything to wear because you need something new so you can feel good about yourself and you can rest. You know, I I hate this house. I just hate this house. If if only I just had a new house. If I had a new house, I'd be happy then. Then I'd be able to rest. If I This job, it's always your employer's fault. It's always your boss's fault. It's always your teacher's fault. You know, they didn't, you know, it's just, I don't know. You just can't hang out with them. They just drive you crazy. You know, this should, I just got to get a new job. This guy's driving me nuts. And so if you just had a new job, then finally you could rest then. If I just, this driver is just, this is the worst driver. Everybody else I play golf with has a lot better set of golf clubs than I do. Mine are lousy. That's the reason I'm not happy right now. I need a new driver. If I could just get a new driver, then I'd be happy. 
You know, we need something new. It might be a new haircut. Who knows what it is? But we need something new. We're trying to climb the ladder of acquisition. The third one is the ladder of appetite. Um, And this is a sad way to put it. But one of the things I've... I don't know that this is necessarily sad. I'm not completely broken off from this. But um, I love Kincaid's hamburgers. I just got to be honest with you. I think Kincaid's has great hamburgers. And I have started out every semester at TCU, first day of class, with a lunch date at Kincaid's. It sets off the year on a good note. And one of the things I've said about Kincaid's is, is that it can turn any bad day into a good day. And that's not even in the Bible, obviously. <laughs> that's very sad to believe that. But my heart has believed that because I can be having a terrible morning. I can go to Kincaid's and sink my teeth in that burger. And I'm feeling good then. The reason is, but at the same time, my team can lose a game and I can go from this mountaintop experience to crashing and burning and completely, you know, fiery flames. And the reason that we're so satisfied by a little thing is because we're so afflicted by a little thing. We only require a little bit of comfort because we require just a little bit of affliction in order to send our world spiraling downward. It's like you're driving down the road and Hey Soul Sister pops on the radio by train. It's like our our car's just bumping, you know. We're like, Hey Soul, you know, this is awesome because you're feeling good. You could have been fighting. Now you got Hey Soul Sister rolling. You're good to go. And so we have this appetite. We're trying to, you know, satisfy something more and more. You know, that's why pornography is such, you know, it's like pornography is like this, this unique kind of drug. It's this unique addiction because there's this person on the other side of the computer screen looking at you, telling you they love you and that you you rock their world and they want to do anything and everything you want them to do. You know, I need another drink. I need another gin and tonic. If I could just get a gin and tonic or another beer, then I'd feel good about myself. But the last ladder that we, we climb in order to find rest is avoidance. You know, we're just going to block people out. We're just going to try to, to kind of quarantine our lives off and avoid all the things that cause us conflict. We're going to try to quarantine our lives off from all the things that complicate life. And then we'll have peace. But David says that's not how it's done. You see, what he says in verse 2 is, there's, that's, none of those are the right way. He says, I've calmed and quieted my soul. Number one, he did it. He was involved. He, it, and it, he calmed and quieted his soul, and it was hard work. But the, thing, but the passage tells us that he didn't do it alone, and he wasn't the one that was working the hardest. He says, I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. You see, in this particular scenario, the baby wants something very specific. The baby wants his mother's milk. He needs that milk in order to have life and health and satisfaction and joy. But the mother doesn't give the baby what he wants. The mother gives the baby what he needs. We hate getting what we need. We want to get what we want. But the baby gets what he needs. You see, he doesn't need the mother's milk the most. What he needs is the mother. It's unique. We don't need God's things the most. What we need is God. We don't need our Father's things. We need our Father. And so the baby, through this process of weaning, which is very dramatic, and there's a lot of noise, and there's a lot of unhappiness, and there's a very concrete loss that this baby experiences during this process, the baby begins to learn what it means to rest in his mother's wisdom. To rest in the will of his mother and in the wisdom of his mother. To rest in the purpose of his mother and the provision of his mother. You see, he starts to get his life on his mother's page instead of trying to get his mother on his page. You see, this is a beautiful picture, and the Bible does this a few times in the Bible. God does this a few times in the Bible, where he shows us that he's kind of like a mother. He loves us like a mother loves her child. 
He's invested in us. He loves us. He's devoted to us. He cares for us. He wants what's best for us. And when we begin to rest in Him like a child rests in the lap of his mother, we learn this deep content, this, this deep resting. It's something that's learned. It's not something that's natural. And Sinclair Ferguson says that the, that the weaning that brings us to contentment always takes place through loss. That's probably one of my least favorite quotes in all the things that Sinclair Ferguson has written. And that's one of the reasons I don't like this song. It's because deep contentment is always learned through loss. Now, I wanted to tell you some stories about some of the things I've learned in my life. But if I told you some stories right now, I'd hijack the rest of the sermon with an illustration. I might get in a really sad mood. Some of y'all might get sad. And we might not, might not be able to learn what God wants us to learn. But I've had the opportunity to think about it throughout the week. So I thought I'd say it to you in a different way. When I was in high school, I went to Christ Church Episcopal School. There was only like 45 students in my senior class. Very wealthy school. We, were, we looked down on everybody else that we played in football. Not because... We always said this. You might beat us, but you'll be working for us. You know, that was kind of our, that was kind of our outlook. You know, you might be bigger and stronger, but we're going to college and you're going to work for us. And so that was the way that we climbed the ladder and made them feel no value before us. The only problem was if we lost 45 to nothing, that was a good night. I'm talking about a very good night. If we, literally, if we lost 45 to nothing and didn't even gain 100 all-purpose yards, that was a good night for us. We lost a football game 72 to nothing. Let me tell you, that feels terrible when you lose a football game 72 to nothing. We only won one game the one season I played. The other season I played, we didn't win a single game. It feels terrible to go through a whole season and not win a football game. But it's amazing what I would like to say, oh, I learned all these amazing things as a high schooler losing football games. I really didn't. But it's kind of a picture of what life is all about. That life teaches us, God teaches us the most important things through loss. Not through achievement, not through appetite, not through acquisition, not through avoidance. He teaches us the most amazing things through loss. There's a great hymn called I Ask the Lord written by John Newton. And I want to share just a few lines from it. This has rocked my world this, this past week. Basically, the first line says, I asked the Lord that I might grow. He taught me to pray. I hope that in some favored hour, He'd answer my request. And then in verse 4 says this, Instead of this, He made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Then it says, Why would you do this, Lord? I cried out, Why did you do this? And then God responds, These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free. And break thy schemes of earthly joy, that thou mayest seek thy all in me. That thou mayest seek thy all in me. You see, God's willing to break us if that's what it takes in order to save us. He doesn't want us to love His things, but He wants us to love Him. So that's how we rest. We find our rest in Him. We find our rest through Jesus working in us. But why can we rest? Well, Stops, the psalmist stops talking to God and starts talking to himself. He says, O oh Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. A couple of things we can learn about this is this. Number one, God knows us by name. He doesn't live in this far off distant relationship with us. But He is personally and intimately connected with us. Lord means Yahweh. It's the divine name of God that says, I love you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'm going to pour out this love that will never let you go into your life. You see, the Lord gives us hope because He gives us something real and something lasting. He gives us something better than something we can achieve, acquire, or avoid. He gives us Himself. 
And I think the best way to understand what he gives us is really in light of Psalm 130. It's a song we sing a lot, but basically the, the psalmist there is saying, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. It reminds us that God hears our voice, that He hears our cries, that He cares about us, that He's not indifferent. He says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, if you kept a record of all the stupid things, all the sinful things I did, who could stand? But you don't, God. You forgive. And therefore, I worship you. And then He says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him there is plentiful redemption. A good friend of mine who is part of the owner at, um, of Camp Greystone, her name is Libby Miller. And Libby says the Bible's about three things. The Old Testament says someone is coming, someone is coming. And that's what David is saying here. You want to know what to hope in? Hope in Jesus. He's coming. He's coming to set things right. The New Testament, she says, the first part is about someone is here. Jesus is here. He's setting things right. But the end of the Bible gives us this amazing promise that we can hope in and bank on. And she says, someone is coming again. You see, we know how it ends. We know we have hope because we know that God's promises to us are bedrock, that we can bank on them because He loves us with an everlasting love. You see, the way that we can find this rest, how we find this rest, is because Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. He's laid all of our rattled hearts and our anxious hearts and our worries and our restlessness on Jesus. And Jesus has atoned for us. You see, Jesus does for us what we can never do for ourselves. And on the cross, he cries out, it's finished. It's been put to death. God washes us in the blood of his son. God poured out the full cup of His wrath upon His only Son, His bleeding, dying Son. He turned His face from Him so He would never have to turn His face from you or me. You see, God loved us enough to hate His Son. He took all of our worries, all the things that we so much long for. We want this rest and we're looking in all these other places besides God Himself. And God put all of those idols on Jesus so that we wouldn't have to bear them. And then God, in exchange, put His robe, put the robe of Christ's righteousness on Him so that we could stand secure, stand in hope. There's a great catechism in the Heidelberg. It's the first one. It says, What is your only comfort and hope in life and death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with His precious blood is fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. Wherefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto Him. You see, it's not a natural peace. It's a peace that we don't find, but it's a peace that finds us. Jesus finds us, and He gives us rest, and He calls us to come unto Him. Well, when I got home from the football game, my pants were not as wet as they were, and the mustard was very much buried inside of the fabric of my Patagonia shorts, and so I did what I knew I must do, and I ran downstairs, and I filled up this bucket with hot water, 
and I don't know if you know about Biz, but I think Biz is the most amazing stain remover. And so I got my shorts out, and I squirted them down with, like, Resolve or something, and then I got Biz in my hand, and I just started mashing it into the fabric. I'm just working it in because i got to redeem these shorts. And um, I soaked them, and then I washed them. And then I pulled them out, and I looked, and there was still mustard on them. So I get, did not give up hope. And I, I got even more vicious with the shorts, more Resolve, more Biz, more hot water, working it in, soaked them overnight. Well, they got washed, and guess what? can't see the mustard anymore. I can wear them all over again. I'm pretty thrilled over that. But here's the thing. That's a picture of what God does with us. He doesn't say it ain't going to hurt. You know, you're, I'm going to give you rest. But he doesn't say it's not going to hurt. It's going to hurt. But what he does is he takes our heart and he starts to work in the blood of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus. And this is great, but it's not that great in a pleasant way. Because what it means is he starts to remove all of our competing affections, all of our idols like our achievement, our our appetite, our acquisition, our avoidance. All those things get dealt with in a very vicious way. And he takes all those things away from us so that he can give us the one thing we need most, which is himself. My friends, come to Jesus, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and He will give you rest. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your goodness. We thank You that You are good and that You love us and that You'll never leave us or forsake us. We pray that we might find real rest in Jesus. We ask this in His name. Amen. The pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. My Lord, my life, my light Oh, come with blissful rain Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away?